Today on Vulnerable, I am blessed to have Blair Imani on as a guest. She is a historian, an author, an activist, and many, many other things. She is really amazing at social media. I have learned so much through her accounts, uh, and I'm really excited to chat with her today. I'm Christy Carlson Romano, and this is The Vulnerable Podcast. Yay, Blair, you're here! I sure am. Thanks for having me. I'm really sorry that we... It's its kind of like we're tucked in here in downtown LA in this 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 really cute like apartment complex, and it's, it's fun to be back down here. I've never lived down here, so that's a whole different experience. It's one of those like Easter egg places where on the outside yeah. you're like, what am I going to get? And then inside like, <laughs> oh, thank gosh. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It also smells amazing in the lobby of this place. That we that's the one thing that I love about LA. Yeah. Like to the olfactory senses, it is delightful. I live in Pasadena, so I'm uh-huh. like a little bit north. But I lived in New York for a little while, and people were like, why didn't you like living in New York? And I'm like, it smelled bad. Like that's <laughs> my primary <laughs> issue with it was the, the bad smells. There are parts of LA that smell bad, but like writ large, like... Somebody made a candle of like New York, and I was like, "This is a lie," because it should smell like. <laughs> what did it smell like? <laughs> it should have smelled like liquid garbage. It didn't, like, smell, no it didn't smell like anguish. Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> but, like, the smell I'm not sure what the actual smell. It was probably just sandalwood, which is like, okay, that's a stretch. But that's a nice bougie version it's of like liquid garbage. It smells like inside 90s. of people's apartments, but that's not the real New York smell. <laughs> Where in New York did you live? I lived in Brooklyn. I lived okay. in this little area called Weeksville, which is like one of the oldest like black settlements in the city of, um, you know, in the city of Brooklyn or the borough of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And it was just so nice. Like we made friends with our next door neighbors, Mr. Kevin, the folks across the street. I got called Mrs. Blair. Like it was a really like familial environment, but I was also ready to leave at any time. Right. You were ready to leave at any time. Are you any from time. here? Okay. Yeah, I'm from Because of the liquid okay. garbage smell. <laughs> that, and I think that New York like, it t- I think it can bring the best out of people and it can also bring the worst out of people because it's so like, it's so hustle culture. Like you have people who, you know, here I feel like you can chill, like especially because like if you don't have heat in your apartment here, like you're going to be cold, but you're not going to be like risking death. Like it is right. in New York. Like oh, it's really yeah. different. I feel like because of the temperature, because of the cost of living, like it's just like a stark contrast. Yeah. Um, it was great for my career. It wasn't great for my mental health, but uh, I yeah. do like to visit. I'm also going to get totally dragged by everyone who loves New York, but it's okay to have different opinions. Yes. It's okay. Don't cancel me. That's amazing. <laughs> it's part of what we'll talk oh, about. Oh, I love that. But no, but it is kind of interesting, the whole like East Coast, West Coast thing. Because when I was growing up, that was like one of the one of the first talks about somebody canceling someone in terms of being like, you don't like the East Coast? Oh, you suck. Or, you I mean, like are you talking the hip hop game or are you talking like just it in general? It filtered into the suburbs. Oh, yeah. Because we're oh. from- I also grew up in the suburbs. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I was in Pasadena suburbs and it was just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the equivalent. I'm from, um, I'm from like a little Italian like town called Milford, Connecticut in Southern Connecticut. And then he's from Long Island. And, and here though. See, and, that's what's, yeah, it, that's got, right. it, was, it was war for me. So you know. Because my dad lived in New York. My mom lived here. I was like, what if you like Pac and Biggie? And right? they're like, what? It's, it's ridiculous. Well, that. you know, it was weird as, for a while. <laughs> it, it's interesting for me because my parents would be like, yeah, listen to Snoop Dogg, listen to like Tupac, listen to whoever you want. You can't listen to Biggie Smalls though. He's inappropriate. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> well, okay. But I then realized I was talking to my fiance Akeem about it and Akeem's like, yeah, it's the East Coast, West Coast thing. And I'm like, okay, makes sense. East Coast, West Coast, man. I remember that very clearly. Yeah. Things have, things have changed. Everybody's everywhere now. We have TikTok. There is no more. Anything. Well, you know what? I actually will say about TikTok, which, by the way, we have to get into your TikToks, which are really top of the class, like amazing content. Thank you. Yes. Um, for many reasons. And content creator to content creator, I see, I see how much work it takes to 
be as concise. And I mean, that's like a, that's a through current with like just the way you're able to, to, to teach Get people an and to be an educator. But overall to do that in the form of a TikTok is its own challenge. And, um, yeah, so let's get into let's it. Let's go through the evolution of you. Yes. Okay. Yay. You're from here. <laughs> yes. Um, Pasadena. Yes, but you went Pasadena. to school. I'm going to fast forward and then you can take me backwards. But you went to LSU. Yes, right? I did. Every day of my life at LSU. So you're from California. Wait, sorry. So you're from California <laughs> and you decided to go to LSU. What? And I was like, you wow, what that. a chart. Thank you. You know, I, <laughs> child actor. Um, I think it was very much well. So like the real story is that, um, you know, Shaquille O'Neal is kind of a family friend. And when he was getting this big statue put up of him um, at LSU, which they unfortunately like put like next to the parking lot instead of in front of the place. But like, what? He's anyway, a yeah, he's an absolute legend. Such a nice dude. Like really, you know just kind of encouraging me to always like do my best. And he's also like so involved in so many like humanitarian and like, you know, giving back efforts anyway. So when like I had that kind of understanding, like through the lens of Shaq, everything is amazing. Nothing is racist. Everything is beautiful because people really are on their best behavior around like a massive celebrity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, wow, this will be amazing. It'll be so close to New Orleans. It won't be too close to New Orleans. So I can like, you know, party if I want to, but I'm still away from the fray. It'll be, you know, and I'm also picturing college the same way that my siblings went to college. Like my brother went to Claremont. My older siblings oh. went to Howard and to Wellesley. So like Super. very like international schools. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was at LSU and was like, hi, I'm from a different part of Louisiana. And it's like, you know, I'm from Terrebonne I'm from Paris. Paris. Yeah. yeah, and it was just very yeah. different. I'm so glad that I went there, though, even though it wasn't what I expected. I think it was the right thing for me because it grew mm. me as a person. I got to get over this kind of like, you know, coastal you know, elitism that really exists. Also, like coast, the whole, like, yeah, that East Coast, it's West down, Coast. It's up, it's yeah. everywhere. It's like, what about Gulf yeah. Coast? That matters yeah. too, you know? Yeah. And yeah. also Zero Coast, like, hello, yeah. Midwest. And <laughs> um, I met so many people. I had to figure out who I was independent from my parents because I think a big part of growing up in the suburbs is, like, who's your parents? What kind of car do they drive? Like, this whole, you know, yeah, like, very, true, huh? you know, what are you doing? Especially in L.A. where it's so, like, Car dependent. People are it's like, car dependent, car it's money dependent, and mm. it's also personality dependent. Oh, how do you think? I think it's like, it just like, who do you know? Who are you seeing? See and be seen. And at LSU, it was just like a different vibe. It was like, can you talk about football? Like, there was, there was still different types of like, <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a lot of different types of systems of oppression that like interplayed in things, but I felt like it was so much more down to earth than my upbringing in LA where it wasn't like, oh, they aren't wearing like the latest whatever outfit collection. Like in middle school, if you didn't have Juicy Couture socks during gym class, you were an outcast, which is problematic for multiple reasons. But like, remember those Juicy Couture like velour jumpsuits? Anyway. Yeah, no, I totally remember that. <laughs> I could never like rhinestones on them and stuff? I never went that road, yeah. I remember when I did a movie with Hilary Duff and she like totally rocked all that she all the time. I was like nerdy. Rocking it. I wasn't too, I wasn't cool enough to wear those. And like meanwhile <laughs> at LSU, the fashion, it was different. There was definitely kind of like a uniform, like dudes and like chubbies and like a polo shirt, backward dad cap, you're rocking it. And <laughs> it's it's you know what? Because he doesn't want to do his hair. No, What's don't up? embrace yourself. No, I, I started doing a flat bill back, back cap. A back cap. <laughs> it's me, right? And I think it's just I'm as I get older. I can't wait for the sideways cap to come back personally. I hope it does. No, actually, I, what I thought was really hot was like the hat that just was a little oh, bit off. I know. Oh, like uh, T.I.? Sometimes kinda like, I kind of make him do it. No, no, no. It's no. this. It's a K-Fed look, really, but like. K-Fed? Oh, that's a throwback. <laughs> oh, my you know what? gosh. These poor Gen Zs, while they grew up, like where they were born in the early 2000s, they wouldn't have experienced it the way that we did. That's, that's true. And I feel like 
you know, getting back to the whole difference between Louisiana and L.A. was that I felt like I didn't have to watch High School Musical because that was just my high school experience. Mm -hmm. And then going to school in Louisiana, <laughs> it was just a different like people were dealing with real life. People were dealing with, you know, their house. Like I had two friends whose roof got blown off during a hurricane mm -hmm. and it was just like a more, I think, really visceral human experience where there was this series that happened like when people were trying to get folks to come to the Orange County Fair. Uh -huh. And it was like, they did an interview with these kindergartners and it was like, this little girl, where do lattes come from? Starbucks. Or like, <laughs> where does milk come from? Lattes. And it's like, <laughs> versus actually going and to a farm and learning right. how to vaccinate cows and like right. learning about all that stuff. Yeah. It was just a different experience. I'm so grateful for it. It was a yeah. definite, um, what's it called? Culture shock. Yes, yeah. But I really learned to humble myself to like realize that just because you live in a place near Hollywood doesn't mean that your life experience or story is more important than somebody else who doesn't have, you know, a reality TV show based on their story. Like, you right. know, if Swamp People was never created, it doesn't mean that that type of life isn't as important as like a high school musical life. Uh -huh. <laughs> Swamp People and high school musical combined. That's a movie. I grew up um, in New England. There was a sort of subtle and ranging from subtle to not so subtle hatred of the South. Yes. I uh, started doing films and kind of hanging around filmmakers and stuff that were working in Louisiana. And I had sort of an initial reaction to Louisiana. I was like, oh, it's backwards here. So I had the lens of sort of like being this East Coaster and like, and even though I lived in California for so long, I was like an actor and really not belonging to anything. It's kind of interesting how people fall into those narratives quite easily with either the way that they were raised and then it colors the lens like what you were saying it is it is quite interesting and now I live in Austin and I feel like I've corrected a lot of those narratives because I'm just so neutral and I'm just taking things very differently in terms of also enjoying just a tired mom so I think you have less opinions <laughs> <laughs> I actually do have the opinions they're just I think for me, <laughs> going to school in Louisiana taught me how to have a conversation with anyone, like regardless of their politics. I think that wow. I've even had to kind of come back to that understanding because when I was going to school at LSU, like, okay, either you're just not going to have any friends or you're going to have to like, like, it's just so weird. Are you going to vet everybody and their politics and what their parents believe in and everything before you talk to them, like in class, because you have to work on a great project? Probably not. So what you have to do is like, okay, I'm hearing a Southern accent. I'm hearing that this person is from this area. I can't just assume that this person hates me in my guts. They might, but that's also with anybody. Like there's intra-community hatred. There's also like within communities. Yeah. And when you have the same goal, which is like, you know, D for diploma at times, like just get a great and, and go. <laughs> it really kind of levels the playing field. And I think it's carried throughout my career. Like um, it's not to say that I think that we should like, give extra time and space to folks who are like really trying to fight for like hating other people. So it's not just like speaking to folks who are completely politically aligned with you, but maybe seeing the possibility and being able to share you huma your humanity and your experiences with people who might just not know what to say about something. Like I had friends who were like, you know, uh, I'm just against abortion. Sorry, I'm not gonna even talk about that, but I'm against, <laughs> I'll talk about immigration instead. Um, I had friends who were like, I'm against immigration. And I was like, oh, elaborate. What and they're like, mean? exactly. And it's like, yeah. so let me know what you mean. And like, well, I just think that, you know, and then they would describe some really specific, horrible instance of somebody getting trafficked across the border and how that just shouldn't be happening. And I was like, I agree. Don't you think that there should be better pathways for folks to be able to safely become citizens and pursue these dreams? And there are so many, you know, towns in um, the United States where folks, you know, it's 
people aren't having kids or people are moving away and those places are underpopulated. Folks who are refugees or immigrants could live there. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I'm like, awesome. Now you believe in immigration reform. <laughs> Just like that, you were taught. Do you remember like the first significant time that you had a conversation with someone like that and that you got that sort of immediate response? Um, it was a very uh, pressure cooker situation. I had met this guy who I dated for kind of the duration of my time at LSU. And he grew up in a like plantation style house in a very small town in Louisiana, which I won't name because everybody knows who or, where it is. But yeah, yeah. I were driving to his house, which I didn't know we were doing because he picked me up in the like middle of nowhere, Louisiana. And I thought we were driving back to Baton Rouge. And then I like take a nap because it's I fall asleep very easily in the car. I wake up an hour later and I'm like, where are we going? <laughs> And we're just like heading towards the border of Texas. And I was like, uh, he's like, oh, I want to introduce you to my parents. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, do your parents know that I'm black? Like, I was just like, is this going to be really racist? And he was like, uh, no, but it shouldn't be a problem. And I was like, why don't you like Wait, let there's a movie? Hold on a second. It was there's just like, get out. Okay, yeah. When that say, happened, I was like, movie. I feel surveilled. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, does your mom um, have But it's a cups. common experience. It was very, yeah. yes, there, anyway, so... <laughs> I have to tell you about this thing that we found in the attic. But anyway, yes, you so um, we we're heading and I was like, just like, let him know. Because I'm like, not sure what this kind of situation is. I'm like relying solely on instinct here. And he was like, OK, text his mom. And his mom was like, oh, good. We end up talking about the Civil War, the Confederacy and Barack Obama at the dinner table. Oh, okay. and I like, so you know, conversation. Yeah, just like immediately. And so it was really interesting. We had some very interesting feedback. I mean, one of the fun things was, well, you know, our ancestors came on the Mayflower. And I was like, so did mine. <laughs> and they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> Because, Fancy that. But, but what was her reaction? Did you actually say that? Oh, I did. And then what was yeah. her reaction to that? Oh. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go put uh, some tea on, you know, like something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, Never yeah, tea, yeah. though, because yeah. he felt that tea tastes like dirty water. It was just a very different experience. I think the novelty of us coming from some such different places, like I learned how to vaccinate cows. I learned like the life cycle of a, of a meat cow and like was vegetarian for a while. It was very, through very this, different. Through this relationship? Yeah. And then when he okay. came to California, we would oh. be like, you know, on the 405 and he would just be like, look at all the people in those cars yeah. because his town didn't get lines painted on the roads until that time period mm -hmm, they wow. had a dairy queen recently and a red box you know video rental like right, there right, was right. a you know dollar store like these were the big hot button things meanwhile i'm like i remember the craze around pinkberry but there was like pinkberry levels of excitement over like we're getting a red box and it's just like different <laughs> ways that people live like needing a satellite phone because you live so rural in the country yeah and it gave me an appreciation for the fact that Folks like that who literally don't live around other folks because of things like redlining and just kind of the way that different communities are constructed, which is, you know, which we might be descended from those folks, but we have little control unless we really want to get into gerrymandering and stuff. We are the products of our environment. And so how can we be responsible for the things that are problematic about how we've been socialized without making people feel bad for who they've become? That's a really interesting point you bring up because I feel like you're very good at disarming people mm -hmm. who have preconceived notions about things. Mm -hmm. And so that gives them an opportunity to learn and grow. And like, I think you just, you have a great way of facilitating conversation. Um, how, I gotta know how, you said, you mentioned you're very casually that you're a child actor. Yeah, let's <laughs> walk that how, back. You how, weren't yeah, gonna get away. How does that lead to where you are now? And what? You're a child actor. Well, so I was like a failed child actor, kind of. Like, it didn't take no. off. Um, I was the kind of group of kids before Corbin Blue, where then it became like, oh, hey, 
there are mixed race people. And it's not to say that before that there was, cause like it's definitely true that the representation of black folks on TV over index for folks who are biracial and mixed race. But I remember going on auditions and I'd be like, you know, I'd show up for like roles for black kids and then be like, yes, but we want somebody who's like more visibly black, which is interesting because mm. I'm doing a lesson soon on how race is a construct and all that stuff. But people definitely have this perception of like, I want this teen girl. And it's like, okay, well, you know, she already has breast development. Like she can't do this, put her in a sports bra. Like it's so contrived and I didn't like that about it. I did a few commercials, none of which I can find on YouTube, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think that the whole learning how to disarm people and learning how to just be like really pleasant or figuring out how I could adapt to a situation that I might be uncomfortable in, I learned that through acting. Like, wow. how do I have this dinner table? I'm like, well, I will pretend that my role is somebody who isn't really offended. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is the most Disney face you could have put on. <laughs> it actually was interesting because I then had to learn how to like, when you're like a child actor, you're like so used to being like, hi, what's up, friends and family? Like, it's like very yeah. camp. And then you have to figure out like, okay, as an adult, like, that's very much a part of my personality and my Smarter and Second series. But how do I tone it down so that I don't, make people feel like I'm coming off ingenuine. It's yeah. such a part of my personality. Like when folks see me offline, they're like, you're more intense than you are on Instagram. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, cause I don't want to scare people <laughs> because I'm just like Some, very tell me. extroverted. Well, yeah. <laughs> like I want you to learn and have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a fine line between, between these very like heavy, impactful informational like concepts that you're tackling head on. And so if you're coming on too strong, yeah, it could scare people away. I never thought about that. Because then people, I think, when you're, like, too nice or too forward, like, I think the show Ted Lasso does a great job of, like, examining this. Yeah. Then people are like, what are you hiding? What are your motivations? And my motivations are, like, to, you know, stay relevant in the algorithm. And then also <laughs> to, like, affect people's lives and, and really hope that they treat one another better. Mm -hmm. I was in tears recently because I did a lesson on uh, capitalizing the B in black. Mm -hmm. And this Arizona teacher had a display that said celebrate black voices. And the next day after seeing that lesson change the lowercase b to a capital B. Right. And I was like, that's the kind of influence that I want. Like somebody is literally, you know, learning from me and my friends, Jamila Nash and Travell Anderson and saying, I was affected by this. I want to honor black folks and use these terms correctly. And I'm going to change my display and affect, you know, these 30 kids lives. That's so powerful to me because I can inspire folks through the stuff I create to take positive action. And the thing is, it's not saving anyone's life. But what it is doing is hopefully chipping away at this socialized dehumanization that we have toward one another, mm. where we stop valuing each other because we've been taught that we're not worth the capital B or we're not worth, you know, changing immigration policies. Like it's very gradual work. And part of it is culture shift and culture change. And I'm not trying to give people the answers to change everything in their lives. But what I want to do is encourage them to start asking better questions about how they, you know, think about different things. Cause I think that's really where change happens. When did this start? Like when yeah. did you decide you wanted to, cause I, I think I read that you started becoming an activist while you were at LSU. Is that right? Yeah. So how did that like become sort of your life path? So I'm competitive. That's the first thing, which I will. Yeah. So when <laughs> I was in middle school, I was looking at my history book and there was this picture of uh, the Little Rock Nine, the, the folks that integrated schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was like, one of these guys looks really familiar. And the context here is that my family's last name is Brown. So I thought that Brown versus Board of Education was us. It's not, um, but I thought that. And so that kind of gave me like this stake in the game. And then we also had all these beautiful portraits by my uncle Charles Haywood, who did these beautiful paintings. So we had these giant portraits of like important black figures 
throughout the house. So I was like, clearly these are all my family members because mm, why right. else would you have a giant portrait? I mean, they're historically significant. It wasn't explained. There weren't like explanatory plaques. <laughs> um, and so I took the book home, which we weren't supposed to do. I showed my dad and I was like, dad, like who is that our relative? Like, oh, that's uncle Terry. That's Dr. Dr. Roberts. He lives right down the street. And I was like, oh my gosh, Dr. Terrence Roberts, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, who volunteered with Dr. King at 15 to integrate schools in Arkansas after Brown versus Board of Education happened, is my neighbor, like lives in the same area. Right. Wow. Superstar. And yeah. then we had this Great Americans project, so I was able to interview him and um, me and Katie Dumont, we went ahead and interviewed him and it was so interesting. And I have the video up on my YouTube channel. It's like the first upload. And it's cute to watch because I was like 12. And I love when I speak to like 12 year olds, I show them that. I'm like, you know, today I'm educating about history. Look at what I did when you I was You were 12. doing this when you were. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a long and time. And so it, yeah. and it's just like so cool to think about that. And you can easily forget about it because you go through life experiences and you're told that like you're not good enough or you can't do something. And then you can be like, well, actually, I have receipts thanks to archiving. Um but I was also competitive. So I was like, okay, I'm 12. He was 15 when he did that. What is my mark on history going to be? And that's not maybe like the healthiest way. <laughs> yeah, but we need people things. like that, right? But it, it motivated yeah. me. And I was like, well, you know, and I, I had kind of struggled through depression growing up as well and anxiety. And the thing that kind of like kept me going was I can use my life to help other people and to educate other people because that was a huge, bold, you know, commitment for him to make. And it wasn't without sacrifice. Like it was a horrifying experience to see people. There's like all that footage of folks like just yelling at them and spitting at them as they mm -hmm. try to go into the schools. Mm -hmm. And so my vision of college was to like be like the Vietnam War protesters. So I was like, we will be picketing every day. We will be sitting in the dean's office. Like this was just kind of my like subconscious imagination of school. Mm -hmm. And then I go to Louisiana and it was like, it was like a regular school. Folks wanted to party and yeah. like not have to go to class. And right. I was like, well, what kind of social change are we making? And the really shifting point for me was meeting my first friend in my political science class, who I'll call Stephen, uh, for anonymity's sake. And he told me, like, I was like, okay, let's do this, uh, you know, project together. And he was like, are you sure you want to? I'm gay. And I was like, yeah, that's cool as heck. Like, next thing. You know, I was just like, right. it's like kind of like pass the butter, like whatever. And... Um, he was like, really? And I was like, I'm from California. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, <I get> <laughs> but then he told me that his parents put him in conversion therapy. They, you know, basically brought him to a priest and tried to pray the gay away. Mm -hmm. And he still at that point felt like it was a problem that he was gay. And that was so different than my experience. Like there was one gay kid in uh, middle school when I was in high school who was out. His name was Hunter. And we thought he was the coolest kid ever because it was like, oh my goodness, like, there's more gay kids. Awesome. Like it was just so exciting. My right. brother's gay. Like it was the cool thing. And it was probably a little bit like over obsessed. Like it probably wasn't like the healthiest way, but it wasn't. It was an overcorrection, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> yeah. But I, yep, I can see that. And then so to have folks who were telling me that like that was something that was going on, I thought that was like done in the seventies. I was like, convert, like what? Right. And then I was like, okay, what can I do? And I rescheduled my classes so that I could lobby folks at the Capitol because we were right at the Capitol in Baton Rouge. Yeah. And I got my little, you know, gift card to Neiman Marcus last call in Saxon Fifth so I could get my little like, you know, lobbyist clothes <laughs> and then go sit next to these like legislators at 18 years old and say like, can you pass like legislation to protect folks. Like at that point you could get kicked out of your house for being gay because your landlord could have moral qualms against your lifestyle. Mm. And it was just so problematic. And um, so I just pushed myself into it because I was like, 
there's work to be done here. I think a little bit came from like, I'm from the socially conscious West Coast. I will save you people here. Interesting, yeah. And I had to do a lot of humbling there um, and grow. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really proud of myself because I saw an injustice and I wanted to take action. Sure. It's interesting. I see there's like somewhat of a similar through line insofar as like, I don't know if you want to call it openness or, you know, being empathetic. But like I, so I was in the Marines for four years from 01 to 05. I went to Columbia, which is where I met Christy. And I was, we'll say, very, very socially liberal. And then moving to Austin or moving to Texas. Uh-huh. Like I was just going to mention this. Yeah, yeah, it was very, like, different for me. Let's say, I, to say I was outspoken <laughs> before I left would be an understatement. But, like, moving there, I ended up realizing, like, oh, some of these people that I had thought were one thing, I just don't know well enough. Like, and started, like, listening to more perspectives. So I'm really interested to, like, kind of hear about how you, like, how did you develop, I know you said through child acting, but the ability to get across ideas so well, whereas people that may be staunchly opposed to what you think or believe in are actually able to listen and then change. Well, there's like, so much you- emotion surrounding politics now more than ever. You yes. know, your superpower really is your approach because you're really reaching and educating. You're, you're such an excellent educator in this way. Yeah, is it something you worked on? Like, like or are you I just think, naturally that way? So I didn't have any friends growing up. Okay. <laughs> like, I would have been your friend. <laughs> Thank you. Why well, didn't we You meet? kind of were on TV, believe okay. it or not. <laughs> See, you were like, I was going to say. It's so you will. There you go. And like, that's really what it was. Like I saw different TV shows where like there was an outcast or like the super nerdy person. And I was like, oh, there is a place for me somewhere. It might just not be here. And I was very friendly. Like I was just hanging out with my friend Max the other day. I was like his first friend when he first moved to the school from an international school. So I could be a good friend. But I think that they were like, I was the only black kid. And I know that there was a lot of like racism. Um, I was... We, like I just at a certain point I gave up on trying to put myself out there because I just didn't want to be rejected and I also wasn't interested in what other kids were doing like in middle school everybody was pantsing each other and I was like I'm gonna chill in the library like what like this mm. it just didn't I'm not interested in that type of cool <laughs> I don't get today. God I wish I wish you were my dog <laughs> are you were your parents pretty chill I mean oh, what were they were like chill. my dad always told me he was like look you're gonna be the nerd and this is, I remember like, he's like you're gonna be that. the nerd and you're gonna work really hard and eventually people are gonna like think that's so cool of you yeah. because you put in that discipline yeah. and it's better to have principles and ethics than to be just whoever somebody needs you to be to be popular. And what are your parents like? Are they educators? Like So my parents, my mom's trained as a social worker. My dad works in mental health and Amazing. he created this facility where um, so many folks who have mental illnesses are kind of locked away and yeah. kind of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. It's really ableist and problematic or mm-hmm. there's no infrastructure and then you have homelessness like we see, you know, like right outside, around this area. Right outside the door. And so my dad created this, uh, it's called Integrated Community Options where folks who are, you know, disabled, developmentally disabled, or who have, you know, drug-induced psychosis are in a space where they're safe, but they're not locked away. They have a medication program, but they also have different activities um, where it's just like, oh, hey, you have, you're neurodiverse, but you are still a person revolutionarily, and you deserve to have, you know, a fulfilled life. And deserve to have a community around you that supports you. And so my dad always called the folks who live there clients instead of patients because he didn't want to have this hierarchy of like they're less than and we're serving them, but they're people who have a service that they come to us for and we're providing that service. And so before we opened Christmas presents, uh, I grew up Christian, we would go and, you know, serve, uh, you know, dinner or lunch at the facility. Wonderful. When the staff was off. And it was like a great way to get like that labor spot filled, but also like for us to recognize that, 
we have these things because we do this service where we take care of people and you need to have an understanding of that. Um, my mom also, she kind of caught that we were getting a little bit privileged in our like, you know, suburban upbringing with the like juicy couture socks and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So the first year of- Did you actually get some? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do I have any of them now? No. But like, did it make me cooler? Also no. Like what the heck? It's like, it was just- It didn't, it didn't make any Social problem. skills. It was a marketing scheme. <laughs> yeah, um, but my mom brought my younger sister and I to New Orleans to meet the rest of our family. Mm -hmm. And we, she like, you know, helped, uh, you know, kind of renovate houses there and kind of rebuild the community that, uh, you know, her side of the family after had grown Katrina? up in. After Katrina? Yeah. It was like a few years after Katrina. Yeah. And it was so funny because my younger sister was like, I hate this house. It doesn't have a pool. There's no stairs. And my mom was like, thank God we're here. So we can like meet like regular people. Because so many of the folks I grew up with, like, were trust funded and had like, you know, one per they had these twins. They both got Escalades. And one Escalade got totaled and they both got new Escalades because one couldn't have a slightly newer one. Oh, geez. What? It was that type of life. This is actually was, my nightmare. Yeah. Whoa. It was yeah. really, it was, you know, having to buy two Escalades, like, oh, a mess. But <laughs> wow. it was just a very warped experience and my parents wanted us to understand that that's not real life. Right. And the things that go into people living those lives means that a lot of people aren't being paid properly. Like if somebody has an abundance of wealth, and I talk about this in my book, like for us to have billionaires and for people to be able to accumulate that much wealth, that's coming at somebody's expense. Like when Jeff Bezos said when he went to space, like uh, this was paid for by the Amazon workers. It's also like, yeah, and that's the Amazon workers where the policies were forcing people to come into work when they were sick and dying. Or uh, babies, like they just, uh, they don't have, uh, like what is it? I can't think because of childcare. What? Stupid mom brain right what? now. Thank you. <laughs> when oh, babies yeah. don't have maternity, those pregnant babies. <laughs> yeah. God damn it! I know what you're saying though. Damn it's it. like you're like not having maternity this? leave means more money in the you know CEO's pocket, which means that they can go to space, which is not advancing humanity at all. Sorry to say, it's actually you know distracting people and maybe giving them something to aspire to. But I really feel like it's negligent when we could be taking care of people on Earth. Anyway, so my parents kind of taught me all that stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, with that point too, it's like. Inspiration's good if you have a functioning planet, right? Period. <laughs> it's like, um, what's the point of all this wealth accumulation if we right. won't be able to survive on the surface of the Earth because it's going to be on fire? <laughs> yes. I'm going to hit you with a hard question. Grew up Christian, converted to Islam. How were the, how'd the family feel about that? Oh, my dad was like, cool, whatever, because a lot right. of his friends converted to Islam in the 60s and 70s. Like, right. my dad went to Ethiopia in the 70s. I didn't know till I was like 18 that he spoke Amharic. I was like, oh, way to keep that secret? It was weird. Like, nobody <laughs> asked me. And I was like, fair enough. Um, and so he was very familiar with folks feeling like they need to reconnect or connect to God in a different way. My mom, on the other hand, mm. <clears throat> she was not pleased. She was not pleased. She was afraid for me because... I had, you know, I had been, I, I did, I finished college, right? I was about to graduate that summer. I had gotten my tattoos. I had done like, you know, wild and crazy things, you know, jello shots, day drinking, you know, tailgating, whatever. The converting to Islam came out of like left field. It was like, you don't expect your kids to like rebel against the culture you raise them in by converting to like an organized religion. And so she was alarmed, um, especially because the day after I converted, I started dating somebody named Akeem Ali and my parents were like, who? It's all happening. Yeah, they were like, so in their mind, I'm sure they were like, oh my goodness, our daughter is converted to Islam for this person who she's now in a relationship with and we right. have to go down to the South and rescue her, which is why Akeem met my mother the first week we were together. And <laughs> it took her some time. Like she was really believing a lot of the xenophobic, Islamophobic things that so many mm -hmm. Americans believe mm -hmm. about Muslims. And so I just had to be like patient with her because I didn't want to be like, well, I just knew I wasn't going to get anywhere being like, well, you're going to respect me or I'm not going to talk to you because you'd be like, I pay your phone bill. And I was like, 
well, okay. And <laughs> it did push me to like become more independent. I got a job. I started working at Planned Parenthood. I did get some distance. I got my own like health insurance and stuff. And I think living across the country and really conveying to my parents that like, or to my mom really that like, so if you can't really respect me and what my beliefs are, then I'm not going to be around you because that's, you know, we have to respect each other to be around one another. Yeah. And I don't think that was ever explicitly said, but eventually she started to kind of like come around. I think that me converting to Islam was one thing, but starting to wear hijab was something else mm. because my mom's understanding of like women's liberation was like cleavage, zero bras, like, you know. It was the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Like very California. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. I remember being a kid, we went to go see Prince and Mary J. Blige at the forum. And my mom was like, this is so exciting. You get to wear Aunt Cynthia's old corset. And so I wore this like crop top corset and like high pit, like How skinny jeans. I was like exactly 18 oh. and like boots and my hair was out. And I was very uncomfortable because I've always liked, you know, kind of being more covered up. Yeah. But to my mom, she was like, if my mom had let me do this, I would have been like, this is awesome. But I was like, we're different people. <laughs> you know what? Actually, happens. that is actually quite interesting. The movement toward modesty sort of this it's really wonderful I'm actually really excited about it I think as long as it's a choice right because there's sure, some sure. people who you know feel comfortable and this was me at one point you know feeling comfortable wearing like a, a bra underneath a mesh top and going to a concert that was very much where my level of comfort was today not so at all like when yeah. I don't wear hijab and I like leave the house yeah. I'm like it's usually an accident and I feel more comfortable covering my head sure but nothing can be mandated like it all has to be choice like it's all about the way that we express ourselves and gender I think that you know um policies that make people feel bad like so many you know young girls like can't wear like yoga pants because it's going to distract the boys like no people's mm -hmm. bodies aren't there for the attraction or interest of other people. Like we're separate human beings. And if you're interested in someone, it doesn't mean they owe you anything. And mm -hmm. like, if you're distracted by yoga pants, maybe you're like me and need to get on some Ritalin, like calm down. <laughs> 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 and so um, after in France, there was the hijab ban, the burkini ban, mm -hmm. where uh, people were on the beaches of Cannes. Mm -hmm. And they're like, that was their, the video of the older woman and the you know policeman trying to take off her burkini. Mm -hmm. My mom sent that around to the family and was like, who would do this? And I was like, now, mind you, and I'm allowed to tell the story. The first time mom saw me in hijab, we were at the grocery store. She had just picked me up from LAX. And she saw the hijab on my head and would, for whatever reason, decided to grab the hijab and take it off my head in public. Mm. Oh. And so I was like, I don't know, mom, who would do that? <laughs> oh. Probably somebody who doesn't fully understand the importance of, and so like, I didn't want to like uh. put her on the spot or do an I told you so, but it just kind of showed the growth that she was able to have. Okay. And so she was kind of like your first student. Yeah. Smarter in Seconds is created for my mother because okay. my mom is a busy woman who she has mom brain often. She's running a business. She's running a lot of things at once. She also has a social club she's a part of now. And if I can't compress it into 30 seconds, like an elevator pitch about social justice, she's like, I don't have time for this. And I'm like, fair enough. In some ways, she is your demo. Oh, yeah. That you're like when I wrote the book and I was like, how can I talk about socialism and capitalism? I was like, mom, can you read this? And she's like, okay. I think I'm a socialist. And I was like, I nailed it. Because <laughs> like five minutes before that, she was like, you know, socialism's just, it's really destabilizing. It's exclusively horrible. Like just, you know, like boomer stuff. Yeah. And then after that, she was like, oh, I think I'm a socialist. You know, the post office is great. Libraries are important. I understand why people so need scary. to be taxed more. And I'm like, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of that. And I think also everybody's family has different ways of understanding things, different opinions. And I think there's a lot of educators like myself whose families are not, as woke as they are. And that's something to be open about because it gives people both hope that they can hopefully influence their families to be more socially conscious or humanistic. But it also is a reminder that like, I didn't know all the stuff that I know about today. And I have to be compassionate for people who 
don't have that awareness, I can't just be mad because somebody doesn't already know something that I didn't even know. That's so refreshing to hear. Like when you're talking about being tired parents, like people like us, there's so much happening so fast. It's probably always happening this fast, but I just had time before. Right. And I would pay attention to everything. Well, you, well, I know for a fact that philosophically you'd be able to dedicate a lot of time and energy to reading up on certain things that oh, caught yeah. your eye and then you'd have lots of information and well, you'd be now, able to same. talk about it. I'm running three businesses. I've got all this stuff going on. And so like, well, to provide for your children, you are, you're hustling for that. Yeah. 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 And I enjoy we it. We both are. But, but there'll be things that happen and I'm like, what is this? Where am I on this? And if I, if I could get something like in 30 seconds, that distills it down, I'm like, oh, great. So, question. Uh -huh. When, I don't know if it's like somewhat of a recent thing, like individual liberty, I've noticed is like a huge thing in the South. Yes. Right? And I get it. Maybe it's my service that makes me understand it more or something like that. Having, it's so funny when you serve, like you give up your democratic rights mm -hmm. to like go do something. You have no choice once you're in, right? But, um, when I log into LinkedIn, it, every single time I logged in, it tells me to put my pronouns on the thing. I think it's probably because of my tech fear where I'm like, no, like you don't have to tell me what to do. Like, you know, but at the same time, I've been thinking, I'm like, well, if I don't do that, is that a bad thing? This is a moment I'm asking you to educate me oh, sure. on this. Like, I, I don't like what is, I think people should be able to be called whatever they want. Yeah. You know what I mean? And whatever makes everybody happy is what we and should like be And like the concern for. is like, if I'm not participating in this, am I not indicating to people that I also believe these things? Exactly. And that, it's really interesting exactly. because it's, it's, it's frustrating to a lot of folks, especially, you know, I, I talk about gender studies and folks in the LGBTQ plus community, uh, folks who benefit from these types of discussions, that the solution is now for people to put themselves out there. Because if somebody uses they, them pronouns or doesn't use pronouns, I have a very close friend of mine who, you know, isn't out as non-binary and would prefer that people use they, them pronouns, but literally can't talk about it because of how it would affect their family and how it would affect their job. Publicly identifying with the identity that is in your heart and is true to you is not always rewarded. And so for the solution to be painted as it's, you know, putting your pronouns publicly, it can be a great step for someone like you to take where it's not going to negatively affect you, but it's also not the beginning and end of what the solution is. And so it, I get frustrated because it reminds me of during the, the protests over the summer of 2020, where people were, you know, rah, rah, like people were getting really socially conscious. And part of that was because there were so many distractions that were taken away. Like there was no sports on TV. People couldn't go anywhere. Folks yeah. did, couldn't go to That's concerts. That's yeah. why there was this... Oh, you know, increased social awareness because what had happened to George Floyd was unfortunately not the first time. Mm -hmm. And unless so many things change, it won't be the last time we have to fight for that future. Right. It's very bleak, but it also was in a unique time where people could devote that time to it. But when I saw folks, um, you know, different, I think it was Washington DC paint Black Lives Matter across the sidewalk and people were like, yep, we're done now. I got really frustrated because it's like symbolic gestures can be something that pushes things forward, but unless you understand the, the ethos behind it, it's not gonna change anything. So basically, when folks feel like taking that gesture of publicly displaying their pronouns is the beginning and end of the work, that's a problem, especially when it's not like explained why. Like in, when Juneteenth became a federal holiday and most people outside of Texas were like, what is Juneteenth? So I did a lesson on Juneteenth and it got a million views and it educated about that in 30 seconds, but it's also like Biden administration. 
can y'all please tell people what something is before you just make it a holiday? Like right. it just it just shows it's so symbolic and it's not actually like getting into anything. I would recommend doing it, but I also would recommend that folks when they see that somebody hasn't, it might be for lack of awareness, it might be because they literally don't want to. And we shouldn't be forcing people to disclose things about their, you know, private information and calling it progress because privacy is also a human right that should be valued and understood. Um, and also like I, that friend that I was talking about, like they don't have their pronouns publicly displayed and people are like, wow, what a backward human being. And it's like, okay, somebody not taking an action on a tech platform is not the same as being a horrible person. Yeah. Um, and we have to look at more than just one thing. Like we can't just make, we can't just make social justice into a series of trends. Like, did you post the black square or did you not? Right. Like, that's not going to give you a good gauge, especially because so many folks posted that and were like, well, I've saved the black. I've done my work. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> God, yeah. And there's probably people that actually think that yes, way. Yes, yes. This is crazy. I want to know about the, um, but the, the, when the activism really started when you were in Louisiana, there was an event right, that it occurred. Could we talk about that? And oh, like sure. That all? Yeah. So um, I finished, like, I so while I was at college, I started doing trainings around, like, you know, civil disobedience, how to take an arrest, like, how to navigate these things. And I was very proud of that. I did a lot of trainings around, like, consent, LGBTQ+, like, identity. I was basically taking the materials that I was doing for class and then, like, implementing them. And That's I amazing. drove all around Louisiana to Shreveport, Lafayette, everywhere, mm -hmm. giving lessons on... Um, Oh my gosh, just like so many things. Lessons to citizens or to police officers? To students, officers? anybody. Okay. Not to police officer. Although one time I did a lesson on civil disobedience and a police officer just like showed up to interject into the lesson. And I was like, oh, it was the most weird experience of my life. But Were they productive? Like, or were they? Yeah, they, he, he was basically like, if you do this, you're going to like, it was kind of like the, if you have sex, you will die. Like it was that type <laughs> of thing. Um, so not the most, but. I mean, it clearly was being heard. I also got a lot of threats at the time, so I ended up graduating from LSU in three years instead of four, so I didn't have a senior year at LSU, which is, like, so unfortunate. Uh, yeah. But I had a rockin' first, like, freshman year, so <laughs> it's okay. Um, and my liver would probably thank me. So uh, I graduated early, and then during the course of that, I had stopped doing activism. I had kind of pivoted. And then I was like, I'm going to get free. I'm going to go to the north. I'm going to enroll in yeah. law school. I went to law school for seven weeks, dropped out, babysat for two months. Then I started working at Heineken in government relations, which was the coolest job. Like, that's when I had to, like, relearn, like, you need to talk Heineken. to anybody. Because we were doing, like, fundraisers for, um, you know. That's what Dave did. I know, but, like, government relations at Heineken. That's it was so I don't Wait, have government it. relations. Yeah. Oh, so like, so like, how is that like, a thing? Making that sure that the excise tax on beer is low and uh, that when we have, like, marijuana legislation passed that we're tracking that. It was just, like, a whole bunch of, like, in the weed stuff. And then my boss, Justin, was super cool. He let me, like, go to different hearings. And so I could continue my activism by, like, learning about which activists were, you know. You were uh, in D.C.? Yeah, I was in D.C. Oh, I was cool. very close to Capitol Hill. I worked mm -hmm. in the same building as CNN. I got to meet Wolf Blitzer. It's pretty cool. Um, and then I went to work at Planned Parenthood. And my first month at Planned Parenthood, um, I, you know, I find out or they really wanted somebody who had had an experience of doing activism in the South for that job in communications because I was going to be working in 10 southern states. Um, and then I find out that the job involves me having to go back to the South all the time. So every, you know, week I was in two different southern cities on tiny commuter planes with folks who we're wearing these increasingly numbers of like red hats. And so it was a little bit alarming. Um, but then I'm like, okay, 
Humans and you were wearing first. your hijab? I was wearing a ball cap on the plane. Or I would go through security with the ball cap and then switch in the bathroom to a hijab. Mm -hmm. And there was one time where I was like, I asked this, and I was like, excuse me, sir, can you watch my bag? I'll be right back to, to run to the restroom. He's like, no problem. And I was like, thanks. And I walked back in with the hijab, and he was like, It's just so funny. One time, this is a total aside, but I feel like it's worth it. This um, dude, I was there's turbulence and I kept getting weird looks whenever turbulence would happen when I would wear my hijab on the mm. plane. And I was like, these people really think I control the weather. <laughs> and so I had gone to Harry Potter world and I got a wand. Oh my God. And the next time I had to be on a commuter flight and there was turbulence and these older dudes who work in oil and gas were looking at me, I pulled this wand out and I'm over here like, yes. and this guy was like, Oh my God. No, no, no. Stop. I'm a racist. And I was uh, like, Oh, uh. he was like, I really thought you was out here controlling the weather. And I, I'm going to pray about that. I'm sorry. And I was like, okay. And so I was Harry feeling- Harry Potter so, fixed everything? I felt like it was so like, wow, we can really change people's lives here. Because I'm like, I was teaching people how to talk about really tough things like reproductive health in the deep South. The whole issue with individual rights came up because it was like, okay, well, you might have this you know, fundamental belief that you know when life begins or, or how people should take care of their bodies. But what you also believe is that the government shouldn't control your body either. And they'd be like, oh yeah, the government shouldn't be in my pants. And it's like, awesome. Or the doctor's office. Right. And a decision should be between that person, their doctor, and their God, if they believe in one. And then we got a lot of traction there. So I was feeling so invincible. My first month there, um, I was like, okay, this is stuff is happening in Baton Rouge. Um, Alton Sterling had been killed by police. And so many of the people who had, I had organized with, especially the young kids at a local high school, they were organizing protests. And their like mentorship leader was my women's and gender studies class teacher. And she was like, Blair, could you give a talk to them? And I was like, sure. So I started talking to them, workshopping like what they should work through, making sure that the you know, initial protest would be safe. And then I decided I'm going. And so my, you were up in DC I was and you're working DC, with Planned Parenthood. And then I flew down and mm -hmm. I made the joke to one of my coworkers. I was like, what if I got arrested? And she was like, it'd be fine. Cecile, you know, Cecile Richards, she just got arrested, you know, fighting for, you know, reproductive justice. It'd be fine. I was like, that's not going to happen. And then I went and I got arrested. <laughs> and it was, it was interesting because it was such a safe and peaceful protest. And then things escalated because the police thought that we were trying to take over the, the on-ramp and block traffic like had been done in Atlanta, even though that wasn't a tactic that was used by folks in Baton Rouge. And so there was definitely, it just escalated. It got out of control. My fiance, my now fiance, Akeem, we had just been together for a year and Akeem decided that I'm going to come down too. And Akeem was a legal observer. Um, I was just afraid the whole time. Like Akeem was at the front and really tapped into this like legacy of community organizing that he had with his family mm -hmm. and was like, okay, what we're going to do is tell people the National Lawyer Guild number. So on this big poster that said Black Lives Matter, the National Lawyer Guild number was written and we were passing out Sharpies so people could write that down if they got arrested. Oh, that's amazing. And we were blocked in. So the SWAT officers were on one side, on the other side, a barricade on this side, and then this side is just residential houses. And so this one woman let us stand on her front porch and uh, they just kind of like jumped in. But the whole time, I wasn't ever thinking that this is going to end up with us getting arrested. I was like, we'll be able to talk this through because that's my total vibe with everything. I'm like, we can just talk it through. Like, we'll just talk. But the police had, you know, they showed up in SWAT gear. So they had LRAD sirens, which are very like weaponized sound. They had earplugs. So that wasn't a viable opportunity for it. We ended up getting arrested. And that was very momentous because I was very content at that point to be behind the scenes. And I then was kind of thrust into the spotlight because when I got arrested, it was in front of this kind of grassy knoll of news cameras 
where I was screaming because as they arrested me, they said, really give it to her as they grabbed what? me. Yeah. And Who I was said like that? one of the, the SWAT officers that oh, grabbed me. Oh, that's disgusting. And they're walking me behind the, the tank, you know, or like it wasn't a tank, but like the whatever, the bear cat. I don't know what it is. Anyway. And I was thinking they're going to take me behind this. And I don't know what they're going to do. Like I'm going to be out of line. So I just started screaming because, you know, got to love instincts. And that, that scream was like the B-roll for every news story for that following week. It was on Telemundo. I had people like, you know, one of my friends, like, you know, nannies was like, did I just see Blair? Like, it was very jarring. I, it was also like, I had just started wearing hijab. This is like the most trivial thing. I had just started wearing hijab and I was in like short shorts and like a tank top basically. And people were like, that's not how you wear hijab. And I was like, I know, but I was getting arrested, you guys. And it was like, <laughs> it was really, it was really fun. And it was, it was hot. So hot. It was very scary. <laughs> and I was also bad at myself because I was like, I've done so much research about how to take an arrest and like how to do civil disobedience. You've, te- you've taught classes. And I'm literally wearing the wrong color clothes. Like, what are we doing? Because you're supposed to wear That's so white wild clothes. that you've studied how to take exactly. an arrest. Exactly. You're supposed oh, to wear so a bra with no underwire because they will take anything away with wire in it. Um, if you, you know, should take sanitary pads with you because those are often not provided, especially at private prisons. You should be wearing white because anything that has like any insignia will be taken away. There are all these things. None of those things that I actually did. So I was like, man, like I was really caught up unawares. In September, I'm actually going to Baton Rouge to continue the lawsuit uh, because the police basically printed out these very standard arrest, you know, requirements and then, you know, printed them out and then just kind of issued it to everybody. And there's been a lot of change in Baton Rouge. I know that there was push for a policy for if you're a police officer in an area, you have to live in the area where the, you're the police, which mm-hmm. has efficacy with different policing groups. Mm-hmm. It was it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. That entire thing, you know, mm-hmm. it also taught me that activism doesn't have to be in the streets. You can also be an activist in the way that we educate people and talk to people. Sure, it's online, it's digital. What is, what is that um, saying that the, uh, the revolution is... Televised? Yeah, yeah. Gil Scott Heron, the revolution will not be televised, but yeah. at the end of the song, he says the revolution will be live. And I love that because it is stuff that happens in person. It's not something that you're going to be able to passively watch. It's something you have to participate in. Mm-hmm. And you're, but you're, you're semi-retired. Yeah. But obviously you're engaged and you're busy and you're booked and busy and you are writing books and you're also, you have this amazing lip care line that I so really want to talk you've about. you've done so much. I know, I, man. It makes me hate myself. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> we all bloom at our own pace. And you've been in the Marines. I could, I literally, we would have these folks sit out the recruiters all the time. They'd be like, you, you want to enlist? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm on a lot of medication. <laughs> and they were like, sorry. And I'm like, uh. Well, if you come with us, you will be when you're gone. <laughs> Just kidding, no. kidding, kidding. No. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been really interesting. Um, I never thought I would launch like a lipstick line. I'm wearing the, the color Euphoria right oh, it's now. Gorgeous. But it's all also educational. Here, I'll pass them. Yes, it's educational? Yes. So. How do you make lipstick educational? So <gasps> I have the series okay. Smarter in Thank Seconds. You. And there are going to be some people, like my mom, who don't want to learn anything as they're putting their lipstick on. But then there are other people who do. So there's a little Smarter in Seconds lesson that goes on every lipstick. Okay. And it is very theory-informed. Like, there's so many things like filters where people feel like they have to change their appearance in order to be viewed as beautiful. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to replace, well, Fempower Beauty, who I did the collaboration with, with my friends, Christina and Alexis. Mm -hmm. I'm officiating their wedding in July. I was going to say. really excited. And um, we just believe that the whole thing of, like, you know, concealer, like, what are we hiding? We're not concealing anything. Thing. We might be neutralizing, like, the fact that we're tired. <laughs> sure, yeah. But we shouldn't feel bad for, you know, just being ourselves and 
just defining beauty in different ways. And so that's what the ethos of Smarter Lip Sets is. It's a smarter formula. It's double-sided. It's matte one side, gloss on one side. Oh, I love that. And it's Me just too. like a practical product. <laughs> Stop. And there's also, um, you know, it's gender-free. Like anybody can wear it because I You, totally you know believe- what? Keep talking. I'm going to put this on you. I'm fine. My fiance let me put what it on him so he could I like test it, when it guys out. I love it when guys do it on daughters. TikTok. I'm down. I got two me up like a princess. Yes, yes. Good. And also I really love the pigment so that it can it can really pop. Oh, I love color and I know you do too. <gasps> Let's talk about color, right? Like do, how how effective is color in your education process? It's so effective. Like when I did a lesson on abortion, I wore gray because gray is a neutralizing color. And I knew if I wore a bright color, then people's like psychological senses would be more heightened to be fighty. But if it could just be gray, it would be more neutralized. The most controversial lesson I ended up doing that day ended up being on the monarchy because I did an English accent and people were like, it's cultural appropriation. And I was like, then I did a lesson on cultural appropriation to explain how like when you're taking parts of the dominant culture, that's called survival, not cultural appropriation. But I really think about color and the disarming aspect is there too. You know, I had um, gone on Fox News. I went on Tucker Carlson tonight. That's where I ended up coming out as a queer Muslim. Don't recommend that. You came out on on Tucker. She says, yeah. I don't recommend I don't that. Remember. On accident. But I was going to say, wow. was that, was that something planned? Because a lot of him. He was like, you're not here to speak on behalf of black people and gay people. And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> I am a black queer Muslim woman. And then I came out to most of my family at the same time, too. But I wore bright pink because I knew if he was yelling at me, then people's instincts of like, oh, this is a very feminine person who looks young and vulnerable. And he's just being a mean, mean man. And I knew I could appeal to people on a different level. So like, it's not just speech that we can use. We can also use visuals. We We can also use color. We can Mm -hmm. rely on color theory. And that's really what I try to do to like give people kind of like the full range of education and really kind of like curate an experience of whatever it is, whether it's lipstick, whether it's learning, whether it's You know who also did that was Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. I don't know who his deal is, but I know that (laughs) that he implemented I mean, McDonald's does it. Right? Sights, sounds, smells of when you go to Disneyland. They're like pumping the smell of, you know, fresh baked cookies to like give you that like, hmm, I want to buy cookies suddenly. It's like, yep. Because the, the thing is, all these systems of hate, they're using fears, tactics, they're socializing us in all these different ways. And I want to be just as, if not more strategic than people who are against positivity and love to get to that better angle because it's it's really a culture war. And if we're going to win, it means like we have to be really intentional and do it with love. Like I was talking about how if I yawned on my Instagram stories, I can make like a thousand, like thousands of people yawn. And I was like, but with great power must come great responsibility. <laughs> Because the type of influence we get has to be really intentional because if right. it's not, we can just end up, you know, I don't want to throw a shade at anyone. You could end up a meme. <laughs> you could end up a meme. Seriously, yeah. if, if you're not intentional about your influence, then you're just a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. And I think Do that's you know what- flash in the pan comes from? Go ahead. So- <laughs> I don't know why. Smarter in seconds. Flash in the pan. Do it. Oh, God. I can't do it in 30. Um, So it it comes from the flintlock rifle where you have to put powder on the inside when you, so, you know, you, you blow the gunpowder into the flintlock rifle. Then there's a little pan here and you have to spark it and it flashes and then that ignites the gunpowder in the flintlock and you could, I saw that somewhere. Oh, snap. I've never fired a flintlock rifle in my life, but I was like, oh, that came from something. Anyway. I love that. My lesson. For no, it's interesting because I often, when I talk about different stuff, I take like the root of the word yep. and then I evolve on it because I think it's a good starting place. Like, did you know where this came from? Of course you didn't. Let's break it down. Well, let's do it. Interesting. You I, could be an educator. What's that? I have, Everybody I has have something been an to educator. educate about. Yeah. I taught English to Germans. 
I don't know if I need to educate about being a child actor. However, I have recently been talking a lot more about that experience that you even had on YouTube. And it was, uh, it was very empowering to, to claim my past and to control the narrative. And I have been implementing different colors, having to learn how to appeal to the masses and my YouTube. We have another podcast, you know, that we're launching where I'm going to purposefully wear color. But like with Vulnerable, I've been purposefully wearing muted colors, darker colors, because I want this to be a show about the guest and, and showcasing the guest's sort of journey. Thank you. <laughs> it's really an honor to be sitting here with you. I'm also really honored that if I ever had any kind of positive influence while you were a young, oh, yeah, for sure. a young person, you know, in Pasadena, kind of struggling with all of that, uh, who is also an overachiever, that's really touching to my whole heart. Um, I have one more question. Um, you, you said that when you were younger, you were kind of, I guess, what would you say? Like a, more like a lo I don't know, a, an elective a nerd. loner? Or yeah, a nerd? I was a, a both. Yeah. I didn't get invited anywhere, but I also didn't hang out with anybody. Right. Do you think that was sort of part of what set you on the path? Like being like that? Or did you just like read a lot? Were you very, I read a lot. Yeah. I also think that like, so in, I was just talking about this in my the dedication page of my book, it says to anybody who's ever been made to feel like a nobody. Right. And I just think about the fact that the feeling of like isolation or not having a cool place to go to. I, I remember my birthday's Halloween. And I remember in middle school, I couldn't get invited to like any Halloween party. And it was oh. like super sad. Also, it was my birthday. And I just remember that feeling. And that's not something that is exclusive to race or gender or sexual orientation or gender identity or, you know, disability. Like that's something that is part of being a human. And so is joy. So is laughing. Right. But if we can tap into that understanding and then apply it to different things, then maybe we can build more empathy for one another. And I just, you know, I really love when I have my followers reach out to me and they're like, you know, this was the only person you were the only person who said hi to me today. And it's just it's beautiful to be able to be the best part of somebody's day, even if you don't know that you are. And I think that's kind of my motivating force. That is very I wholesome. That. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. It is 100%. Where can we find you? Where can everybody find you? I know where we can Well, find you've got a lot going on, too. So what is, besides the lip care line, which is launching, where can we buy it? It's live. It's ready to go, ready for you to get smarter while you also have a smarter lip formula. It's at fempowerbeauty.com, F-E-M-P-O-W-E-R beauty.com um, and also below. all over my social media my page is at Blair Armani I'm reluctantly on TikTok like I have to be I'm on YouTube but I'm also developing programming with the Jim Henson company and talking about like educating about being a child actor I really want to make sure that you know having like live child actors on my show that they have a safe space as they're learning because having an adult's job as a kid is difficult and Wait, that's amazing thank we you need to, <laughs> we, we have to talk about this off off camera please that's amazing oh definitely I'll give you all the deets I volunteer as oh, tribute. Amazing. Because <laughs> like, there's so many things to learn. Like how do we, you know, make sure that the worst things that we went through as individual people is something that nobody else has to go through. Because I think that's the one way we can all take, take action to be an activist. Like if there's something in your life where you were like, oh, that was the worst part of my life or like that was the hardest thing, then figure out what you can do to make sure that other people don't go through it yes. once you've healed. The goal should be to mitigate suffering. Yeah. By leading with love. Mm-hmm. Thank Love you it. very much for coming today. You're it was a real honor, and we will be supporting you any way you need. Where We're can here. we find? Where can everybody find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Not on Twitter because whew, yep. no. Um, <laughs> and yeah, usually around Pasadena. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. 
Vulnerable is hosted by me, Christy Carlson Romano, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham and executive produced by Brendan Rooney. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham, and our video editor is Eduardo Gamba. Follow Vulnerable wherever you listen to podcasts so you can join me every week for a vulnerable conversation. And be sure to follow Vulnerable on Instagram and TikTok at The Vulnerable Podcast. And make sure to tune in to my YouTube to watch the video version. 